This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's history, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of occultism, murder, and religious discrimination that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Police in the small town of Lower Quinton, England, knew it was never a good sign when calls came in close to midnight. Nobody contacted the authorities that late, unless they'd stumbled into real, serious trouble. On the night of February 14, 1945, one of those calls came in. Police were surprised by the grisly and mysterious murder of 74-year-old Charles Walton. His niece had found his body in a field. A pitchfork had been shoved through his throat and a crucifix carved into his chest. Witness statements left investigators baffled. Many claimed that Walton had been eccentric, prone to seeing things that weren't really there. He may have even dabbled in witchcraft. Then there was the fact that Walton's body was discovered near an ancient druidic ceremonial site known as the Rollwright Stones. As strange as it seemed, ritual murder appeared to be the best explanation for Charles Walton's death. No self-respecting police officer would ever release such outlandish details to the public. But six years later, self-proclaimed witch Gerald Gardner revealed to England that occultists walked among them. The pronouncement seemed to justify the initial suspicions about Walton's death. Police were never able to solve Charles Walton's homicide, but in August of 1960, construction workers on his former property unearthed a pocket watch containing bits of colored glass, which local folklore suggested was used in spells. This final bit of evidence was enough to close the case in many people's minds. Witches were real, and magic was deadly. Hi, I'm Greg Polson, 
And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today's episode is part of our series on Halloween, where we delve into the fascinating traditions behind the world's scariest holiday. If you enjoy this episode of Cults, be sure to check out the rest of the ParCast Presents Halloween feed on Spotify. This is our second episode on Gerald Gardner, the father of Wicca. Last week, we explored how Gardner was initiated into the new forest coven of witches, learned their secrets, and then released them to the public. Or so he claimed. This week, we'll explore the fallout of Gardner's decision and the growing pains Wicca went through as it transitioned from a small secret society to a global religion. We'll also discuss the ways that Wicca changed and the debates over whether it simply adapted to a changing world or sold out everything that made it special. Throughout his life, Gerald Gardner's chronic loneliness led him to seek out a community where he could belong. He finally found what he needed when he joined an ancient pagan group practicing a secretive religion known as Wicca. He was initiated into the New Forest Coven in 1939 when he was 55. At least that's one version of events. Some critics believe that Wicca never existed until Gardner made it up entirely, along with his claims about the New Forest Coven. What we can't say for sure is that in 1947, Gerald Gardner founded the Brickett Wood Coven, the world's first-ever documented Wiccan sect. Today, historians debate whether this was when Gardner invented Wicca or if Brickett Wood was a natural outgrowth of the New Forest Coven. In 1954, Gardner published The Secret Society's Practices in a book called Witchcraft Today, founding the modern Wiccan religion. He claimed that Wiccan membership was declining, and he believed that casting a wide net for new blood was the only way to save the ancient practices. However, given his chronic need for love and social acceptance, it's likely that he was just courting fame. Gardner's decision to share these ancient religious secrets with the public proved to be a double-edged sword. On one hand, it connected him with a plethora of willing converts, ensuring the religion wouldn't die out due to lack of interest. However, the members of his own coven objected to Gardner's methods and believed he was only interested in fame. From his urchin-like boyhood to his lonely adult years, Gardner had always been deeply lonely. Now it seemed that Gardner was filling his need for social acceptance through the press. Vanessa is going to take over the psychology from here. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Anthropologist David Sloan Wilson wrote that the pursuit of fame might be an outgrowth of a desire to belong to a group. A person obsessed with being accepted wants to be liked by everyone, even strangers, and publicity is the easiest way to accomplish this. 
Gardner's attention-seeking likely stemmed from his lifelong, deep-seated feelings of isolation. And all of his public statements were perfectly crafted to garner attention. Gardner claimed that Wicca had been in continuous practice for thousands of years, since well before the first Christian missionaries reached England. For centuries, witches practiced their beliefs in secret, fearful of religious discrimination and witch hunts. But fear wasn't the only reason that Wiccans kept themselves hidden. Some of Gardner's followers liked this secrecy, as it also meant exclusivity. When Gardner started talking to the press, he spoiled the mystery around witchcraft, and some of the original witches, especially Doreen Valiente, high priestess of the Bricket Wood Coven, strove to maintain their traditions. Although he was never formally excommunicated from the New Forest Coven or the Bricket Wood Coven, Gardner soon found himself the target of criticism and exclusion. He overcompensated for the rejection by forming numerous new covens all over the world and publicizing his beliefs whenever possible. As Gardner and his initiates founded new covens in Castleton, Glasgow, and Hertfordshire, he ensured each group maintained the same core beliefs that he'd first developed at Bricket Wood. He wrote a charter detailing these beliefs. Gardner freely admitted that the oldest records of Wiccan practice were lost. To compensate for this sparse information, he supposedly researched extensively to reverse engineer the ancient pagan practices. But due to this, it was hard to discern where the traditional beliefs ended and Gardner's additions began. Social psychologist and author Alexandra Stein noted several key ways that cult leaders maintain control. One is a concept called total ideology, or the belief that the leader, and only the leader, can set doctrine. This means that followers are expected to accept teachings as they come from the founder, even if they change over time or directly contradict previous pronouncements. Gardner was free to alter the New Forest Coven's charter and set new practices at will. He was riding the line between religious teacher and cult leader. The charter established the Wiccan calendar, which was built around eight holy days. These were equally spaced throughout the calendar, including the shortest and longest days of the year and the equinoxes, or days that are exactly 12 hours long. Which is a gender-neutral term for all Wiccan practitioners, were to honor these days with religious ceremonies. But Gardner was quick to point out that holidays were not ideal for the practice of magic. He was evasive about the specific ways that spells were cast, or what magic could actually accomplish. He simply claimed that Wiccans were different from traditional depictions of witches, who consorted with the devil or brewed potions over bubbling cauldrons. Instead, he implied that magic could be powerful, but was often indistinguishable from coincidence or simple cause and effect. As he described in his 1959 book, The Meaning of Witchcraft, magic is, as I understand it, the art of getting results. If I make a wax image of a man in the proper manner, stick pins into it, and tell the man what I'm doing, and he dies of fright, I contend that he died as the result of a magical act. Wicca involved the worship of both a god and a goddess, who were equal in power. In theory, this meant that Gardner's covens championed the equality of the sexes. 
In practice, societal patriarchy seemed to color Gardner's interactions with the female witches he knew. In his writings, Gardner claimed that in ancient times, before the earliest witches were driven into hiding, women lost their virginity during solemn ceremonies. The high priest, or another man selected by him, would have sex with the woman while the entire coven watched. Gardner claimed that the woman's partner was often a complete stranger to her. The act was meant to symbolize the woman's symbolic union with the coven and with divine powers. Her sexual awakening was impersonal, a tool to serve the needs of the group more so than something personal or private. He didn't seem to espouse similar attitudes regarding male sexuality. This is consistent with the observations of psychologist Alexandra Stein, who noted that cults typically treat women's bodies as desexualized vessels for devotion and discipleship. In this way, it's easier for cult leaders to push against women's sexual boundaries and therefore control their behavior. This may seem like yet another red flag when it comes to Gardner's teachings, but it's difficult to say whether Gardner followed his own policies regarding anonymous ritual sex. By many accounts, Gardner's wife of nearly 30 years, Dorothea, was never a member of his covens, and the two maintained a loving, monogamous relationship. It's impossible to be certain about Wiccan's sexual ethics thanks to Gardner's insistence that specific Wiccan practices remain secret. Although he loved to court publicity, Gardner recognized that his so-called witch cults had always been secret societies. If he revealed all their mysteries, he'd lose what made Wicca so special. So even though he published broad strokes information about Wiccan beliefs, Gardner never openly discussed the particulars of how spells were cast or what went on in private ceremonies. All new converts had to swear not to repeat the coven's secrets to outsiders. Those oaths were given during initiation ceremonies, which Gardner argued were one of the most important elements of Wicca. He claimed a person couldn't truly practice the craft without a formal induction. Only already initiated Wiccans had the power to initiate a new member. In practice, that meant that every new convert could trace the recruitment lineage back to Gardner. He initiated new high priests or priestesses every time he founded a new coven, and those witches in turn initiated their followers. Then the newcomers would rise in the cult until they had the power to induct new members, and so forth. By establishing himself as the progenitor of all Wiccan lineages, Gardner made himself the most important figure in the religion. Reporter Bose Harrington identified seven signs that differentiate cults from religions, one of which was the requirement of inappropriate loyalty and adulation for a leader. It certainly seems inappropriate for Gardner to have set himself up as a sort of father to the entire religion. He was just a step away from depicting himself as some sort of god, not surprisingly, when Gardner took his beliefs public, suspicion and accusation against the Wiccans began to fly. No matter what you believe, outlandish claims about witchcraft and Satanism sell papers. Beginning in the 1950s, tabloids began reporting on grim and grisly murders and trying to link them to occultists, especially Wiccans. 
The February 1945 murder of Charles Walton, for example, was sensationally dubbed a magical ritual killing. Numerous papers inaccurately claim that Walton's death was the latest in a 70-year cycle in which satanic sacrifices were regularly offered on February 14th. In addition, witnesses reported seeing black dogs and other stereotypical signs of black magic when Walton died. Gardner inadvertently made the accusations much worse. In a 1955 interview with the Sunday Pictorial, he emphasized that Wicca didn't practice sacrifice or ritual murder. Unfortunately, the reporter took his quotes out of context and published a hit piece about the moral dangers posed by witchcraft. They called Gardner's books foul bait, which are meant to trick upstanding people into practicing witchcraft. The article lifted quotes from Gardner's books, including his fictional novel, High Magic's Aid, to argue that Wiccans hosted orgies and desecrated Christian churches. Doreen Valiente, the high priestess of the Bricketwood Coven, saw this as a validation for her anti-press viewpoints. She rallied the rest of the coven to condemn Gardner's overzealousness in speaking to the public. But Gardner insisted he'd fix the problem the exact same way he'd caused it, by explaining witchcraft to the public. Even after Doreen explicitly requested he give no more interviews, Gardner kept talking. He examined traditional negative stereotypes about witchcraft and picked them apart, disseminating as much accurate information about his version of Wicca as he could. Regarding the Charles Walton murder case, Gardner explained that there was no record of any similar murder 70 years earlier or at any time in local documented history disproving allegations of a cycle of ritual sacrifice. He further posited that if witches were to perform deadly rites, they wouldn't do so on February 14th, which had no particular significance on the Wiccan calendar. Furthermore, he debunked the claims that Walton's corpse was found near a sacred stone circle. The Rollwright Stones, an ancient druidic site, were a full 12 miles from Walton's resting place. Ultimately, Gardner was dubious that Walton's murder had anything to do with witchcraft at all. And even if a Wiccan was involved somehow, he insisted that meant a single individual had acted alone. Wiccans were no more likely to be good or evil than members of any other religion. In The Meaning of Witchcraft, he explained, magic is itself neither black nor white, bad nor good. It is how it is used, the intent or the knowledge behind it that matters. Gardner seemed to keep the worst accusations at bay, but his coven members still dreaded further fallout. Ultimately, their worst fears would prove well-founded, but the real danger to Wicca didn't come in the form of murder charges or newspaper hit pieces. Gardner himself and his tendency to exacerbate tension among practicing witches had already spelled the Coven's Doom. Up next, the Coven's Court Controversy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Gerald Gardner, the father of Wicca, spent the 1950s and early 1960s courting the public and the press. As witches were blamed for everything from murder to declining morals in the succeeding years, he did all he could to set the record straight for most of his 70s and 80s. Ironically, although Gardner loved the publicity around Wicca, he was otherwise a private individual. He rarely spoke about his personal life or about his wife, Dorothea. She seemed to have been uninterested in witchcraft and most likely never joined a coven. It's possible Gardner rarely spoke about his marriage because it contradicted his public persona as a mysterious, magical witch. And the public loved to hear about magic. As more people converted to Wicca, Gardner maintained that he'd saved the religion from dying out and disappearing. But it was really himself that he was saving. The fame and adoration were enough to fill his gnawing hunger for social acceptance, almost. As he promoted Wicca, Gardner traveled the world, founding covens and giving press statements. His journeys weren't solely for PR purposes. As a lifelong asthmatic, Gardner found that the chilly, wet winters of England wreaked havoc on his respiratory system. Besides that, leaving the country gave him respite from the constant criticism he faced from the Brickett Wood Coven. After repeated requests that Gardner be more thoughtful about his press appearances, Brickett Wood High Priestess Doreen Valiente finally sought to rein him in. She proposed a new charter featuring proposed rules for the craft, including a strict ban on publicly discussing Wiccan practice. Gardner countered with his own craft laws. He claimed there was an ancient document he'd uncovered in his research, and it incidentally gave him complete control over the coven and over Doreen. Worst of all, even though Wicca ostensibly preached gender equality, these new craft laws required that women, like Doreen, submit to their male superiors, like Gardner. Sociologist Yanya Lalich noted that cult leaders often impose strict control over their followers and may even invent new doctrines or revelations to shut down questioning or pushback. Once again, Gardner was pushing into dangerous moral territory. Doreen's ousting wasn't the first instance of Gardner's hypocrisy and sexism. While high priestesses were supposed to be the final authorities over their covens, he still claimed special powers as Wicca's original founder. He did a good job of giving lip service to feminism, but in practice, he blocked women from opportunities to exercise their own power. Doreen in particular chafed against Gardner's rule that only men had the authority to initiate female witches. Furthermore, women were only allowed to learn spells from male mentors. Disgusted with the blatant sexism, Doreen abandoned the Brickett Wood Coven in 1957. At least that's one version of events. Some historians believe that Doreen's resignation wasn't entirely voluntary. 
Around that same time, an unidentified younger, more beautiful female witch was initiated into Bricket Wood Coven. The ambitious newcomer soon set her sights on the high priestess's seat. Doreen was unwilling to give up her well-earned authority and power. She even threatened to leave the coven to escape the newcomer's politicking, and other members, including a man named Ned Grove, said they'd resign with her. Soon, in an effort to save Bricket Wood from splitting, Gardner intervened to moderate between the competing witches. Suddenly, he uncovered a previously unknown traditional Wiccan practice, which stated, the high priestess will gracefully retire in favor of a younger woman, should the coven so decide in council. In other words, Doreen Valiente, the founding high priestess, was replaced with a younger interloper at the orders of Gerald Gardner, a man who was barely involved in the coven's day-to-day operations. After Gardner ousted Doreen, the breakup was bitter. For years, she and Gardner didn't speak at all. But their split wasn't the most significant challenge Gardner faced that year. In 1960, he also lost another important woman in his life. His wife of 33 years, Dorothea, passed away. Gardner was devastated. His grief was so severe, his asthma symptoms worsened, likely due to stress. Now he constantly struggled to breathe. He lost so much weight he looked skeletal, and his friends noticed that he frequently seemed confused. He took to traveling even more extensively, taking the opportunity to focus full-time on the religion Dorothea had never prioritized. Through a strange twist of fate, the jet-setting gardener reconnected with a woman named Monique Wilson around 1960. Gardner had been friends with Monique's father when she was growing up, but the pair had fallen out of touch over the years. As an adult, Monique was fascinated by witchcraft and wrote a fan letter to the author of one of her favorite books, Witchcraft Today. It wasn't until they began exchanging regular correspondence that Gardner and Monique realized their shared history. From there, a friendship formed. He initiated her into the craft and imbued Monique with the authority to found more covens on her own and even initiate members of any gender. Perhaps he'd learned from his earlier conflict with Doreen. Monique also helped Gardner manage his extensive collection of sacred items The pair came to operate the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic on the Isle of Man, off the coast of Britain. Gardner's museum displayed many of his own personal ritual artifacts, including the spell books he'd collected over the course of his lifetime. The museum served as an effective PR tool. He hosted interviews there, posing for pictures with ancient swords, in sacred circles, and alongside demonic imagery. He didn't seem to care about the irreverence, so long as he kept getting attention. Psychologist Mark Schaller found that increased public scrutiny, like that which famous people receive, leads to heightened feelings of self-awareness. That elevated level of personal reflection, in turn, can lead to self-loathing and self-destructive behavior. In essence, simply becoming famous can lead a person to engage in harmful practices. Gardner was like an addict 
All he wanted was to be loved and accepted, but he couldn't stop alienating those who were closest to him. Every time he tried to replace his lost loved ones with a new coven or by pursuing fame, he just pushed his original friends further away. In early February 1964, 80-year-old Gardner tried to escape from it all by taking a cruise to unwind and refocus. One chilly day at sea, he woke up early, as usual, enjoying the luxuries provided by the SS Scottish Prince, a cruise liner. The ship was carrying him home from Lebanon, where Gardner had relished not only the warm Mediterranean climate, but also the opportunity to visit ancient magical sites. He spent the last few days exploring locations believed to be important to the Knights Templar. That morning, Gardner was midway through a hearty breakfast when he was struck by a sudden, fatal heart attack. Gardner's body never returned to his home country. Instead, as his standard practice for civilian deaths at sea, his corpse was offloaded at the next port of call in Tunis, Tunisia. He was buried there with little ceremony. Later, when the graveyard was in danger of being plowed over, Gardner's friends had him disinterred and moved to a holy site near Carthage. Unfortunately, Gardner's death only led to more division within the Wiccan community. For years, his will had specified that his estate, including numerous spiritually significant Wiccan artifacts, was to be left to his sister-in-law, nieces, and other members of his family. However, only a few weeks before his death, Gardner had updated his will to leave most of his possessions to Monique Wilson, the Wiccan who helped him manage the Witchcraft Museum. Although the craft did not have a tradition of inheriting titles, Gardner stipulated that upon his death, Wilson would be dubbed the Queen of the Witches. This stoked further frustration among practicing Wiccans, but Wilson embraced the title, using it in public appearances and when she hosted tours at the Witchcraft Museum. The suspicious timing of the update and the strange title led to extensive legal disputes over Gardner's estate. Monique managed to have the lawsuits thrown out, but the deep rifts around Gardner's inheritance destabilized the religion. Gardner's absence, coupled with vicious infighting, created a power vacuum within the covens. This was truly terrible timing, as Wicca's crisis of leadership came right as the New Age movement was priming the public to accept the existence of benevolent magic and witchcraft. The sexual revolution, civil rights era, and increased interest in alternative religion all marked a loss of relevance for traditional values, including those of Christianity. The public wanted more Wicca, and nobody was there to answer the call. Eager new converts found themselves with no clear mentors to guide them, and while Gardner's most natural heirs fought amongst themselves, outsiders shaped the group in their absence. In 1968, an organization called the Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell, or WITCH, began preaching a militant feminist version of Wicca. At its core, WITCH was a feminist revolutionary organization that encouraged its members to reject structure, authoritarianism, and patriarchy in all its forms. 
They eschewed Gardner's core belief that new Wiccans had to be initiated by current coven leaders. Instead, in order to be a Wiccan, all the woman had to do was say, I am a witch. Thanks to witches' rhetoric, many new practitioners began to self-identify as Wiccan, although they had never belonged to any coven or received a formal initiation. It might seem strange that members of an activist group would teach the tenets of a religion they didn't fully understand. However, it's likely that Witch saw Wicca as a political tool to raise awareness of gender inequality. Psychologist Stephen C. Wright, Donald M. Taylor, and Fatali M. Mogadam found that oppressed people will react to societal inequality in one of four ways one of which is called collective non-normative action. This is any group activity based around confrontation or flouting social norms, including riots and acts of civil disobedience. As a militant organization, which was designed for collective non-normative action and their decision to redefine Wicca as an individualist feminist movement was crafted to upset the maximum number of people. The general population was already off-put by Wicca, thanks to negative stereotypes about witches and spellcasting. Thanks to two years of witches' efforts, Wicca lost its connection to ancient secrets and ceremony in the public eye. If anyone could be Wiccan, then anyone could also decide for themselves what Wicca meant to them. And male initiators no longer had the power to dictate who counted as a real Wiccan. Traditional Gardnerian Wiccans were outraged that Witch co-opted their secret society for political purposes. But this was only the first blow against Wiccan traditions and practices. In 1973, Monique Wilson, the inheritor of Gardner's relics, sold off many of his treasured religious artifacts. She argued that at the age of 50, she was too old to manage his extensive estate. However, she was also deeply in debt and seemed eager for a quick, sizable cash payout. Holy items were passed off to the highest bidder, with no effort made to keep them within the Wiccan community. A sacred altar, Gerald Gardner's magic wand, a silver chalice, and 3,000 books, including his own handwritten spells and notes, were all sold to Ripley's Believe It or Not. In exchange, Wilson received 120,000 pounds, or the equivalent of nearly two million U.S. dollars today. The controversy around the Ripley's exhibit serves as a microcosm of Gardner's life and legacy as a whole. As a secret society, Wicca was in danger of dying out without Gardner's intervention. But when it became accessible to the public, it lost a fundamental part of itself. Gardner always maintained that he had to bring Wicca into the wider world in order to find new converts and preserve witchcraft's heritage. But after his death, many feared he'd saved the craft by selling its soul. Coming up next, Wicca faces organized discrimination from those who see witchcraft as a threat. Now back to the story. After 80-year-old Gerald Gardner's death in February of 1964, the Wiccan community underwent a crisis as its former leaders fought over the movement's destiny. 
when the militant feminist organization, which rejected the practice of initiation in 1973, Wicca transformed from a ceremonial secret society into a broader, undefined spiritual movement, and more changes were soon to come. University of Bristol's Ronald Hutton once described Wicca as the only religion which England has ever given the world. While it's undeniable that Wicca had its roots in British history, once Gerald Gardner took the movement public, it spread from the Anglican shores and traveled throughout the world. Without any doctrine of inerrancy or powerful clergy controlling the narrative, Wicca could be continuously reinterpreted and updated for the changing world. The radical organization which initially made the connection between Wicca and feminism, but later, less militant activists molded the craft to suit their own needs. In the 1970s, women's rights advocates were drawn to the religion, pleased to find a faith centered around both a god and a goddess, and that had sex positivity as a core tenet. At the head of this feminist reformation was Doreen Valiente, the high priestess who'd resigned from Bricketwood Coven decades earlier due to the institutional sexism. But there were more changes to come. Wicca was reinterpreted again after ecologist Margot Adler was initiated into a New York coven in 1973, when she was 27 years old. She saw an innate connection between Wicca's focus on nature and the new green movement she was at the forefront of. In a series of articles and books released in the 1970s, Adler advocated for Wicca as a nature religion suggesting that witchcraft was a natural fit with ecological sustainability. Another figure who brought Wicca further popularity was Laurie Cabot. Like many early Wiccan converts, Laurie was formally initiated into the Gardnerian tradition. But after she relocated to Salem, Massachusetts, home of the infamous Salem Witch Trials, Laurie broke down more barriers to the faith. Like Gardner before her, Lori saw value in drawing public attention to Wicca. She also met some of the same resistance to openly practicing her beliefs, and Lori then followed in Gardner's footsteps by ignoring the criticism. She became a professor at Salem State College and taught a course on witchcraft and spellcasting. For years, Lori campaigned to be formally recognized as a real witch. She succeeded in 1977 when Governor Michael Dukakis declared her the Witch of Salem. The belief system underwent yet another reinvention in 1990. That was the year the Association of Hedge Witches was founded. The group arose to meet a previously unnoticed need. Many Wiccan practices required a coven of three to 13 initiates, but most practitioners didn't belong to a coven, and some lived in communities where they didn't even know a single other witch. The association provided the communities and meetups that solo witches craved, taking the religion one step further from its roots as a secret society. The group began its communications with a print magazine, but really took off once they moved their operations online. Since the association of hedge witches blazed their magic path across the internet, other Wiccans have successfully adapted their traditional nature and earth-focused beliefs for the digital age. 
With email and message boards, witches could exchange spells, share tips, and even plan the occasional real-world meetup. Social media has opened doors for Wiccans to connect with one another and share their beliefs with the world. Instagram features witchcraft-centric accounts with hundreds of thousands of followers, publishing spells and meditations. Accounts offer instructions on how to observe the holy days, discussions of the best magical items to include on sacred altars, and disseminations of magical mantras. Consultant and author Lawrence R. Samuel theorized two ways the Internet played a key role in the growth of non-traditional religious movements, like Wicca. First, it allowed practitioners to find one another and connect to a community that may not exist in an individual's geographic area. Second, radical and non-traditional ideas are easy to disseminate over the Internet, and potential new converts are exposed to ideas they might not otherwise encounter in their offline lives. Although Wicca has continuously been reinterpreted, revised, and reborn over the years, a few key beliefs still bind current practitioners together. Broadly speaking, Wiccans today believe in the power of nature. They perform magical rituals modeled on ancient practices and generally believe in the equality of the sexes. Interestingly, in the 2000s, many of Wicca's most enthusiastic converts have been teenagers, especially teen girls. The influx of adolescent self-identifying witches into the Wiccan community has spurred some degree of controversy and debate. Gerald Gardner maintained for his entire life that Wiccan initiates had to be adults with the maturity to consent to the secret and sacred rites. Traditionalists critique teen witches, not only for supposedly being too immature to understand the craft, but also for being too trendy. Adolescent interest in witchcraft tends to spike when Wicca appears in pop culture. The craft, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and the chilling adventures of Sabrina are all teen-centric movies and TV shows that borrow Wiccan beliefs to tell supernatural stories. Authors like Silver Ravenwolf, the pseudonym for a Wiccan who wrote Teen Witch, Wicca for a New Generation, have been accused of cashing in on witchcraft solely because it's popular. And her fans and subsequent Wiccan followers are similarly dismissed as shallow and faddish. Whether Wicca was perceived as a celebration of femininity, a reverence for the earth, or a personalized form of spiritualism, it continues to find a wide audience as more people determine what it means to them. But the many faces of witchcraft also lead some critics to interpret its teachings in the darkest possible ways. Thanks to Wicca's use of spellcasting, practitioners often face suspicion and accusations of devil worship or corruption of the youth. They even experienced discrimination from members of other religious traditions. For decades, state-run cemeteries forbade the use of encircled five-pointed stars called pentacles and other occult symbolism on gravestones. The families of deceased Wiccans, including veterans, sued for the right to display the sacred symbol and finally won their case in 2007. The next legal battle came in 2011 when the state of California ruled that it didn't have to make religious accommodations for incarcerated Wiccans. 
the court decision ensured that the roughly 600 witches in the state's prison system would not be permitted to visit with pagan chaplains, utilize worship facilities, or access sacred items necessary to perform their rites. And Wiccanson witches remain popular scapegoats whenever unsolved murders or strange crimes are committed. Florida police officers gave a statement implicating witchcraft after a grisly triple homicide during a 2015 blue moon. The Wiccan community was quick to denounce the investigation. Wiccan activists haven't backed down in the face of discrimination. Much as Gardner did in his own life, some modern witches court the press, staging public demonstrations and giving formal statements. Not only do they hope to dispel stereotypes about witchcraft, but many still see Wicca as a tool to advance political agendas. After Donald Trump was elected U.S. president in 2016, 13,000 witches organized into a group known as the Magic Resistance. Every month after his inauguration, Wiccans gathered to perform binding spells, chanting, so that he may fail utterly, that he may do no harm, you're fired. It's debatable what kind of impact the spells have, but the increased visibility has transformed the movement. In the United States, membership jumped from 8,000 self-identified Wiccans in 1990 to 340,000 in 2008. The craft more than quadrupled in size in under two decades. And in 2018, there were an estimated 1.5 million active Wiccans in the United States. This made it one of the most practiced religions in America after Christianity. Wicca's home country, the UK, boasted a smaller but still sizable population. A 2011 census documented 12,000 practitioners. Gerald Gardner brought Wicca to the public in a hope to win more converts, but it's unlikely even he could have foreseen such massive growth. He lived his life seeking two things, magic and belonging. He found both in Wicca and the new forest coven that initiated him. Today, millions of people look to Gardner as the founder of their religion. In life, his efforts earned him the monikers, the father of Wicca, and the Witch King of Britain. In death, a once lonely boy who never had friends or close family found himself revered by a community several million strong. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. For more information on Gerald Gardner and the New Forest Coven, amongst the many sources we used, we found Modern Wicca by Michael Howard and The Meaning of Witchcraft by Gerald Gardner extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. 
Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Cults was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 